Well, this is the last in a message in a series, short series that we've been in on Lord's Day mornings regarding the fact that God is mighty to save. What does his mighty salvation look like? How is that described in this passage? And what should we know about it? Let me ask you a question. Do you ever get distracted? I mean, really distracted. It wasn't long ago that I had uh, come to work uh, during the week, and I had left my Bible over here in, in this building on the, the front row. And I remembered that when I was in my office. And so I made the walk across the parking lot. And as I came into this building, I came into the lobby, and I noticed that the pillows needed to be straightened in the lobby on those couches out there. So I went out there, fluffed them up a little bit, and put the pillows in order. And then I remembered that uh, we were out of water in the reception room where I was holding a class and we needed some water in there. So I thought, oh, well, I should do that while I'm here. So I ran downstairs and I grabbed some water out of the downstairs kitchen and put it in the reception room so it would be ready for the next class. While I was in the reception room, I also noted that we were out of Kleenex boxes and tissues in there. And I thought, oh, man, I need to make sure that we order some of those and, and get those in. I did make my way into this room, the assembly room, and I noted that the chairs needed to be straightened. You know, they were all, everyone likes to sit in the back and push the chairs back. So I always come in here and sneak them up to the front. So I'm, I'm pushing the chairs around and all of that. Got done with that, and then I went back over to my office and sat down, realizing I forgot my Bible. And I had to come up over here and keep focus and get my Bible. And I came for to begin with. Does that ever happen to you? That never happens to you. We can easily get off course. And even when it comes to reading a passage like Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, uh, we often get distracted. We get distracted because there are a couple of very familiar verses in this passage that we will look at today, verses 8 and 9. Many of you could quote these verses by heart. And they're verses that are often used when we are helping people understand the nature of salvation and that it is not by works, but it's by God's grace. However, that's not the primary point of the passage. In fact, uh, look at how verse 8 begins. There's a little word at the beginning of verse 8. What is it? For. What does that tell you? You could almost put in there the word because. And what it is doing is it's saying, because this is true, now here's what I'm going to tell you. That little word occurs again. Look at verse 10. Four. And again, it's saying, because this is true, what I've just mentioned to you, here's what else is true. And so when you follow the thought of the passage, really beginning back in verse 1, and you come to the end of these verses... The verses that really stand out are explaining the main thing. The, one, the verses that we know in the passage we think are the main thing, they're actually explaining the main thing. Well, what is that main thing? We've noticed this in weeks past, but let me just rehearse it with you again. Look at how it begins, chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead. And we know that that's really referring back actually to chapter 1, 
and this prayer that Paul prays, and he prays that you would know the, the greatness of God's power toward you in salvation. And he said that power, <clears throat> the mighty power that God used to save you is like a resurrection, like when he brought Jesus from the dead. This is the power, this is how God is mighty to save. And so he says in chapter 2, verse 1, and you were dead. And he's going to say, here's what it was like. You were dead in trespasses and sins. Verse 4, but God did something. What did he do? Look at the middle of verse 5. He did what? He made us alive. And here's that power that God uses to save. We were dead in trespasses and sins, but God made us alive. Verse 6, he raised us up. He seated us with Christ. And now verse 7, why did he do all of this? So that in the coming ages, he, that is God, might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. There is the focus of the passage. Salvation is really not about us. How do you feel about that? Salvation is about God. So that in these coming ages, he's going to show something about himself. Now, because that's true and that's what salvation is, that's why it happens this way, verse 8. He's going to show the immeasurable riches of his grace because you are saved by grace through faith and it's not of yourself. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works because we would all boast about it. Do you see the connection? What he's saying is God's glory is paramount and that's why when it comes to salvation, it's God's doing and not yours. Because if it were mine, what would I do? Well, I outlasted everybody else. Thank the Lord I'm here. And in addition to that, because it's for God's glory, what you do once you come to Christ is very important. Because you're God's workmanship, and you've been created in Christ to honor God in what you do. Not to bring you salvation, but because you're saved. So this morning, I want to look at verses 8 through 10, and we're going to note again that God is mighty to save people for his glory. He has stated this plainly in verse 7, and in verses 8 through 10, he's now going to confirm this by explaining the grounds of that. And so we're going to look at two things together from our text, and we'll be done. But let's pray. Lord, would you help us? understand your word, and that we would really just make you big in our eyes today. And if there be one here who doesn't really understand this, they've not been made alive, they have a hard time glorying in, in you, in what you do. Would you be gracious and show them that, that Perhaps they need your transforming grace. They must humble themselves and admit that. That they indeed would be your workmanship to bring glory to you here and throughout all eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. All 
I want to state our first point this way, according to verses 8 and 9, that since God does save people for His glory, salvation is not achieved by human effort. Since this is what God intends to do by saving anybody, you cannot achieve salvation in your own human effort. Human works are no grounds for salvation. The text is plain in verse 8. For by what? By grace. You are saved by grace. Grace is the basis of salvation. It is the objective, instrumental, and effectual cause of salvation. It's by God's grace. What is grace? We hear a lot about grace. It's on the names of churches. You, you read about it often in the Bible. What is grace? Simply defined, grace is unmerited favor. If I am doing something for somebody because of my estimation of them or something they have done for me, that is not grace. Grace is doing something for somebody just because I am who I am. They've done nothing to merit the favor I am extending to them. And this is the essence of what the Bible speaks of when it talks about grace, unmerited favor. There is so much confusion about grace today, even among the Lord's people. Many people don't fully understand God's grace. And here would be an indication of that. You don't understand God's grace if you feel all the time as a believer that God is somehow out to get you. That God is breathing down your neck. And you think he's just waiting for you to step out of line to clobber you. Your estimation of your relationship to God, you perceive is based on your merit. God says it's by grace. It's an unmerited favor that I love you. If you don't understand grace, then you don't understand that when you fall or when you fail the Lord and, and sin against the Lord, even as a believer, if you try really, really hard to make up for it, well, I failed the Lord today, but tomorrow I'm going to get up extra early and read more Bible and do a lot more good things. Because then I'll kind of get back into his good graces. You don't understand grace. Because grace has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with God. Think with me of Christmas. Maybe this isn't the best illustration because we always talk about were you naughty or nice this year. But think with me of giving a gift to somebody. Let's call it a birthday. Somebody has a birthday. And you purchase a gift and you give that gift to them. When you give that gift to them, you're not looking for something in exchange. Here's the gift, and the person receive it doesn't take the gift and shake it and say, eh, that's probably 25 bucks. Here you go. No, it's a gift. It's because you're you. Because you were born. 
What did you have to do with that? Nothing. It's a gift. It's for you. It's a silly illustration, but it's the best I can do to think of this as God's grace. You are saved entirely by the impetus of God and what He does. And the text is making that painfully clear. The Scripture everywhere speaks of this. It's by grace that you have been saved. The basis of our salvation is entirely of grace. Okay, if that's the basis, we're saved by God's unmerited favor, how is it received? Did you know that that is by God's grace as well? How is it received? The Bible says you are saved through faith, verse 8. By grace you have been saved through faith. In other words, grace is not universally and arbitrarily imposed upon its object. It actually acts through a medium, and the medium is that of faith. By grace, through faith, well, that begs the question, what is saving faith? How do I know I have saving faith? Did you know there are different kinds of faith? What would it take for someone to really have this faith that accesses grace that results in salvation? Historically, there have been three components to saving faith. The first of these is knowledge. I cannot believe in someone or something I don't know about. And so, for instance, in Acts 16, the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? And their response is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You, you need to know the person of salvation, Jesus Christ. What do you need to know about him? According to 1 Corinthians 13, 3 and 4, you need to know that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and then he was raised again according to the Scriptures. You need to know his person as the perfect Son of God, his work, his sacrificial death in your place for your sin. You've got to know those facts. Apart from those facts... Nobody is saved. Romans 10 says that if you don't know those facts, you haven't heard this message preached, you can't be saved. That's why we send people around the globe and we give of our hard-earned dollars and we pray for people to take this message around the world because they have to know who Jesus is and what he has done. Knowledge of Christ is absolutely essential for salvation. If you're talking to somebody and they say they're a Christian and you ask them, okay, how am I sure I have a relationship with God? And they say anything other than the fact that it's through Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection, they're not a Christian. Because you have to at least know that. That's faith. The second aspect of saving faith, though, is this. It's assent that those facts are actually trustworthy. That Jesus did actually die. And he was actually raised. He is actually living in heaven. And there's trust or reliance upon the validity of those facts. It's assent to the truthfulness. Do you believe those facts? Jesus, I think, alluded to this sort of shallow faith in his story about seed and soil. And he gives an example, a parable about seed and soil. And in that, he gives this example. He says, there are other seeds that fall on rocky ground and when they did not have much soil, 
And immediately they sprang up and looked like something was there, but since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Now, Jesus explains this parable this way. He says, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. They, they know the facts on a certain level. Yes, okay, this is great, good news, I'm forgiven, absolutely, I'm joyful about that. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. What happened? There's this immediate reception. Yes, this is true, I believe this, but when life gets hard... Well, I thought this was going to fix all my problems. Maybe I need to look somewhere else. Maybe I need to try Buddhism or Islam. Maybe that's where I'll find this truth that helps me. You see, you can have a, a kind of shallow faith. Saving faith involves knowledge of facts, assent to the truthfulness of those facts, but the final component of saving faith is essential. It's called trust or reliance upon those facts. James writes this in James chapter 2. He says, don't you know even the demons believe and tremble? You know demons have faith? They believe. What do they believe? When Jesus was on this earth, he would cast them out. You know what they would say? Don't torture us, son of God. Well, they know exactly who they were talking to. They believe. They know the truth about Jesus. It says they even tremble. They kind of have this assent to the truthfulness of his person and what he can do. But do demons have saving faith? No, there's no aspect of reliance upon Jesus' work. Complete trust in what he has accomplished. What does this reliance look like? How would I know if I'm really relying upon Jesus in this way and I have this saving faith? Jesus put it this way, Matthew 13. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like this. It's like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. Again... The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. What's Jesus getting at? It's the all in these things. The field, the treasure in the field, the one pearl, that is the ultimate thing. And I gladly sacrifice everything else and get rid of it all for the one thing. I'm completely reliant upon that thing. That's what it means to have saving faith in Jesus Christ. If Jesus is not the way, there is no other way for me. He alone am I reliant upon to save. This is saving faith. So is Jesus meaningful and valuable to you? At what point did you place your full reliance upon him? And today, are you fully reliant upon Jesus for access to God? 
forgiveness of your sins. That's saving faith. Now, if you look back with me at the text in Ephesians chapter 2. By grace, you've been saved through faith, this kind of faith that involves knowledge, assent, and trust. And now notice it says, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Here's the third thing we note about this. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Now follow with me. I hope you're looking at your Bibles. When it says, this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, what is this and it referring to? What is not of your own doing, and what is the gift? Some people look at this and they say, okay, well, it's salvation. Salvation is not of your doing. Salvation is the gift of God. Some say, well, it's grace. Grace is not of your own doing. Grace is the gift of God. Some people say faith is not of your own doing. Faith is the gift of God. What is it? Grammatically, the answer to what is this and what is it is that it's all three. What is the gift of God? Salvation by grace through faith. They are all of God. That may be a surprise to some of you. You may say, well, wait a minute. I know God is gracious to save. It's all of him. But don't I have to believe? So when we're talking about salvation, isn't this my contribution? I mean, I mean, Jesus did his part. My part is to believe, and that's what I bring, and that's what I contribute to salvation. I hate to break this to you. Actually, I'm glad to break it to you because it's the word of God. That is not a proper understanding of the scripture. Do you know what you and I bring to salvation? Sin. That's my part. I'm a sinner. And what this says is God saves through grace, by grace, by even gifting you the faith to believe. Faith is a gift of God. Why is that the case? Why does God say that? That he even gifts me the faith to believe in what he's provided. Here's why. Look at verse 9. It's not a result of works because if it were, if it were even based on my faith, what would I do? I get to heaven, I say, well, praise God. When that message came to me, I was unlike those other people and I believed. I understood it and I got it and I'm no dummy. God says, that's exactly why I don't do it that way. Your faith is a gift. And because it's a gift, 
That's why God doesn't take it back. Honestly, beloved, this is why many believing people, they have a trouble, troublous time with their assurance of salvation because it's the sense that it's my faith that saves me and I'm completely reliant on the fact that I'm actually believing and keep believing hard enough to do this. And so I've always got to be able to do this. The Bible says, listen, the fact that you believe any of this is a miracle of God because all of us in our fallen condition run from God like a thief from the police. No man seeks after God. What God has to do is actually open our eyes to the truth of who he is and who we are, and he actually gives us faith to believe. That's what the text is saying. Well, how does that work? Maybe this will help. Since we've been seated here this morning, all of you have been breathing. How many of you have thought about breathing? Maybe a few if you have a cold or something like that. Am I breathing too loudly? I don't know. But we really don't think about that. Why? Because air pressure is exerted on our lungs that causes us to reflexively breathe, and that's how it works. The pressure comes, the reflex is breathing. And this is the sense that we get here from grace and faith. It is God's grace upon us, but even that is the effectual agent that we reflexively believe. It's grace and faith. But that's God's doing. He's exerting the pressure. And this is what's being described in the text. What do we contribute to our salvation? Yes, we believe. I, I'm not doubting that, but God does even that. Since God saves people for his glory, salvation is not achieved by human effort. Normally, the flight from Nassau to Miami took Walter Wyatt Jr. only 65 minutes. But on December 5th, 1986, he attempted it after thieves had broken into his airplane and stole all of his navigational equipment. With only a compass and a hand radio, he flew into blackened storm clouds. When his compass began to gyrate, Walter concluded he was headed in the wrong direction. He flew his plane below the clouds, hoping to spot something, but soon knew he was lost. He put out a mayday call to the Coast Guard for help. Suddenly, Wyatt's right engine coughed its last and died. The fuel tank had run dry, and about 8 p.m. at night, Wyatt could do little more than guide his plane into the dark waters below. He survived the crash, but his plane disappeared quickly before the waters, leaving him bobbing on the ocean. With blood on his forehead and in the leaky life vest, Wyatt floated on his back. Suddenly, he felt a hard bump against his body. It was a shark. And then another. He kicked the intruder and wondered if he would survive the night. Somehow he managed to stay afloat and survive that night. When the sun rose the next day, again he saw sharks in the area. In fact, he saw dorsal fins headed toward him. Several of them, knowing them to be of a different kind and bull shark, and he knew that he was in great trouble. He was nearing exhaustion. He thought this was the end, and then he heard the sound of a distant aircraft. When it was in half a mile, he waved his orange vest, and the pilot radioed the Cape York, which was 12 minutes away, 
get moving, Cutter. There's a shark targeting this guy. And as the Cape York Cutter pulled alongside Wyatt, a Jacob's ladder was thrown over the side. Wyatt was helped up the ladder, collapsed on the deck, and kissed the deck, thankful that he had been saved. Wyatt didn't need encouragement. He didn't need better technique. He didn't need to become a more champion-like swimmer. Nothing less than an outside intervention would save Wyatt. And it's true of you and I as well. Salvation is not something we need to work harder at. It's not something we need to clean up our act from. Salvation is God's outside intervention by his grace through faith to make you alive. And that's God's grace. We contribute nothing but sin to our salvation, and God provides it all. Have you experienced that? Do you know that's true? But such an emphasis like that on the grace of God and salvation that he provides it all leads to an opposite position. Because some people take that and they say, okay, if it's all God's grace and God does all of this, and I'm always related to God through grace, then it doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter how I live. In fact, have you ever met another Christian who doesn't act like it, but when you press them upon what God says about how they should live, their immediate response is, you're a legalist. I'm under grace. And God accepts me as I am. And that's their response. Well, did you know, because God makes it so clear to us that salvation is by grace, he also knows that's a part of our human fallenness that we would wrestle with. And we would have the pendulum swing to the other side. And that's why he gives us the second explanation. Look at verse 10. Salvation is for God's glory. Why? Because verses 8 and 9, it's all of God's grace. There's nothing we have to do with it. Verse 10, and because we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God had prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The second point is this. Since God saves people for his glory, true salvation that God works produces good works. It does change people. Not in order to achieve salvation, but because we've truly been saved. In other words, salvation by grace through faith is evident. It can be seen. Here's how he puts it in verse 10. For we are his workmanship. Now, let me give you the Greek word that's translated as workmanship, because you'll recognize it in English. It's the word poemon. What word do you think we get from that? Poem. What's a poem? It's a work, it's a masterpiece for some. It's lines put together very carefully and cleverly to convey 
a masterpiece. And he says, God saves you by grace through faith because, because you're God's masterpiece. When he saves you, he doesn't expect you to be what you were. He's made you alive, and there's actually a radical change that takes place. In fact, he says that you are created in Christ Jesus. You're created in Christ. That very terminology has the idea of, of something new. It's used in chapter 3 and verse 9 of creation and all that God has made. And it's saying, and you're like that. When God saves you, he, he makes you new. And now he's fashioning you. You're his, you're his poem. And why would God do this? Well, because we are created for good works. You are not created because of your good works, because of what you do, but you were made new so that you would do what? Do good works. Your life would be changed. You would give glory to God by how you live. What are these new works? What do they look like? Well, he says you should walk in these good works, the end of verse 10. He's created us in good works, which God prepared beforehand. He knew he was going to do this, that you should walk in them. Well, what does that look like? Look at chapter 4, and look at verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of this calling. What's the calling? We've been saved by grace through faith. And here's a work, verse 2. You should do this with all what? Humility. And in gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Okay, God saved you and made you anew that this kind of stuff would be coming out of you. Humility, gentleness, patience. That's a good work. Those are good things. That's why God saved you. Here's what else. Look at verse 17 of chapter 4. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They become callous, have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. He says, don't walk this way. God saved you from that. Change your mind. Change your actions. Live differently. Then he says, walk this way. Look at chapter 5 and verse 2. <clears throat> or verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But, verses 3 through 5, sexual immorality and the like, put that away from you. What does our culture tell us today? Love is erotic. That's what love is about. It's about sex. The Bible says, no. The Bible says, love is about self-sacrifice, not self-indulgence. So walk in love as Christ loves. Change your mind. You're his poem. You're a workman. You're a work of his. You're going to walk this way. Look at verse 15 of chapter 5. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but wise. 
I don't have time to elaborate, but he's going to go on in the rest of the passage and he's going to say, here's what the wise walk looks like in your home and with your children and at your place of work. And he says, God saved you for his glory that you would glorify him even on this earth in how you walk, how you live. Salvation changes you. And if it doesn't, maybe you don't have it. Because it should be evident. This is how Peter talks about it. Peter says this, But you, saved people, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's God saved you. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And God saves you for his glory. He saves you by his grace and he changes you. Why? That you would show something about him in the earth. The excellencies of him. That people would look at you and say, you're not like the rest of us. You walk to the tune of a different drummer. Something going on. How come when we press you, what comes out is humility and meekness and gentleness? Why is it that you don't do everything everybody else does and and indulge in these kinds of things? Well, because you're God's workmanship. He's fashioning you after the image of his son to display his glory right there where you live, among those people with whom you work, in that family that he's placed you in. That's what he's doing. Why? Because it's for his glory. You can see back in Ephesians chapter 2 that this passage actually ends as it began. Chapter 2, verse 1. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once, what? Walked. You once walked this way. Now, chapter 2, verse 10, the end, God has done something, created us for good works, that we should what? Walk in them. And this is the outworking of our salvation. If it's by the grace of God, through the faith that he provides, then it actually changes people to walk in a different way. God is mighty to save people for his glory. And he does so for his glory supremely. Are you okay with that? I gave this illustration last week, but I want to give it again just to cement this, and I'll be done, I promise. When someone's a young believer, think of yourself. When you first came to faith in Christ and you you received the Lord, you're, you're thinking in terms of, yeah, salvation's about me. I have a great need. And because I have a great need, need God had to do something to help me and that's why he would do that and it's true that God loves us and God's grace to us is is abundant there's no doubt about that but friends it's when you get older and you walk with the Lord that you realize that actually it's about him and God saved me to show something about him And I'm actually 
more satisfied when I understand that. And I live that way. As a child, we think of a car with a gas pedal and a brake pedal and a steering wheel. And we're all about it. As an adult, I should say many of us think in terms of internal combustion engines and pistons and how all that goes together and creates torque in the converter and powers those axles. Well, when you grow in the Lord, you realize it's really amazing what God has done for His name's sake. And I'm actually more satisfied with that. May God help us to see that. Let's pray.